All right, what's up to all the cinephiles out there? Welcome to another episode of the Marquee Spotlight, coming to you from the always sunny Portland, Oregon. I am your host, Spencer Bailey, and I'm here with my co-host, Abracadabra. She's going to reach out and grab you, Chelsea Burnett. Hi, Spencer. For those that don't know, that's a terrible Steve Miller song. I, I thought about putting a clip of it in, but he seems like the kind of guy to sue, so... I opted not to, but that leads us to our spotlight topic of this episode. We're doing the first in a series we'll be sprinkling in from time to time called Twinning. Because from time to time, the phenomenon happens where two movies that are almost identical come out in the same year because Hollywood is trying to one-up each other. I don't know. Yeah, it uh, it is such a phenomenon that wikipedia even dedicated a whole page to it twin films and uh there are this dates back to like the dawn of hollywood like i was looking at their list and there are movies from like the 20s and 30s that were still coming out uh with the same themes um and i do think a lot of it is probably a classical rivalry between studios who can do it better and we're going to see who did it better today Absolutely. And for this first edition of Twinning, we have chosen the uh, 2006 duo, The Prestige and The Illusionist. We were really excited to get into that. But first, a news story. So if you haven't heard, Christopher Nolan, who had a longtime relationship with Warner Bros., um, he has left them out as it was not a, it was like a falling out it was mm, not good pretty ugly yes and uh after being courted by many studios has opted to go with universal yeah the uh i think the quote is he called hbo max the worst streaming service the, which the, is not correct the quote is like uh warner brothers went from being the best movie studio i am paraphrasing and now he's like the the day, the sun is setting now with us all knowing that HBO Max is the worst streaming service out there, which is a bit dramatic. Why do you think he took this as personally as he did? When when I, I guess to give some context, when they decided to do the play play and date, how, what is that phrase that they use uh, for uh, releasing a movie on the pl- on HBO Max in the same day in theaters? Yeah, I, I can't remember what the term for it is. Nolan is really apprehensive about this new streaming age we're in. And, and I know that a lot of it comes from his love and appreciation for, for cinema, for, for the theater. And he makes movies for the theater, and he does a very good job of that. Why he, I don't know what I'm trying to say here. Why he holds that in such high esteem that he's so resentful to streaming, I I, I don't know. I, I mean, he's gotten to where, I'm a, look, I'm a huge Nolan fan, but let's just call it like it is. The man has a, a, a quite an ego now. I, I, you know, it doesn't. It doesn't come out in obnoxious fashion like some other people, but he he has he has an ego, and with what he's accomplished, I I see where it comes from. But you know, he really wanted to keep things alive through COVID with Tenet. I don't see how that could have been possible, and I feel like Warner Brothers placated him 
to the best of their ability, but I just don't think he was happy with the result. I think he feels slighted by them, and it it uh, ended their their long relationship with his production company, Syncope. Yeah, it almost makes me wonder if there's like more to the story here than we're really being given. If if there was maybe if Christopher Nolan was already kind of trying to break away from Warner Brothers to just. I don't know. I I don't fault him for thinking maybe he could get a better deal with a different studio after working with Warner Brothers for so long. If so, he used this as like I, I this can be my platform that I can say is the reason I'm leaving. And maybe also HBO Max isn't giving the whole story behind, or Warner Media isn't giving the whole story behind why they changed their release um, protocol because of the pandemic. I'm wondering if this was something that was already in the works uh, before uh, COVID hit. So um, I, I, I don't know. There's a lot to think about. I think that's probably an astute assumption on your part. Um, I think that I mean, look, people that run companies like HBO and Warner Brothers, you know, owns HBO. These guys are these or these men and women are not stupid. Mm-hmm. Like they could probably see the writing on the wall. They know what the streaming world is is bringing us to. So, yeah, maybe 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 it was we have to deal with COVID and maybe what some of it was COVID will help us accelerate what we already had planned because they were the first ones to do it. HBO Max is like, hey, everybody. By the way, you know, on a Wednesday, boom, we're, these are all the movies we're releasing at HBO Max this year. And it was flooring when you saw the list. I got to see Judas and the Black Messiah because of that, uh, which from my own TV at home, which I was grateful for that opportunity yeah. to have that. But um, would I have seen Godzilla versus Kong in theater? Absolutely not. Did I have a blast watching it in my living room? Yes. So much fun. Yeah. Um, I, what do you think about the, um, Christopher Nolan now being partnered with Universal? Do you, like, Universal has been putting out the Fast and the Furious movies, I think I was reading, and, um, you think that he's in good hands with them? I was, I was going over his list of, like, demands that he had, Christopher Nolan had. uh, He's definitely flexing there. So, so let's, let's just say it. So, to all the production studios that were courting him... He wanted total creative control, which I don't. I yeah. think for him is not a great demand. He he's earned it. One hundred day theatrical window. So when any movie he makes, hundred days in a theater, not crazy. His movies make a lot of money. Hundred million dollar budget and equal marketing budget. So he wants around a hundred million dollar budget to make a movie and an equal marketing budget. of first dollar gross and a blackout period for the studio that picks him up three weeks before and after his movie is released. That's what's that really got me there. And there's one reason Universal got him because they were the one that said, yes, absolutely. Chris, whatever you want. Um, And like Sony and um, Apple were the other two studios going after him and they really didn't comment after Universal uh, got him. I to answer your question, I I think that that's probably the best choice. You know, I often think of Nolan as the, kind of the new Spielberg, and it's not that I think he, you know, makes you know Spielberg movies have much more of a uh, a fun side to them. But in terms of big budget movies, you go just to have a good time. Go see just to have a good time. 
I think Nolan is, I mean, he's, he's very, like we've talked about this on other episodes. He's very divisive now, but I, I don't understand why. Like, just go see his movies and have a good time. He's not made, like, Dark Knight trilogy is not Shakespeare. Like, it's okay. But they're incredibly well-made movies. But sp- comparing him to Spielberg, I thought his company, Syncope, was going to have a long-term relationship with Warner Brothers the same way Amblin has with Universal. Yeah. So to answer your question, Universal's been doing this with Spielberg for quite some time, which is probably why they don't have a problem uh, giving full control to, uh, um, you know, the hottest director in town. Yeah, that I. It's isn't it funny how um, these logos and things get burned in our brain? Because before you even mentioned Spielberg, and I asked that question about Universal, I was like, wait, I th- I'm remembering now seeing Universal logos in front of like at the start of Steven Spielberg movies. But um, anyway, yeah, yeah, I'm not sure when that started because I think Paramount made Jaws, and they made Indiana Jones. Um, who made Back to the Future? Um, uh, was that Universal? I'm going to look that up. So Back to the Future. Back to the Future was Universal. Okay. Uh, and, and it's under Amblin Entertainment as well. So those are probably the early days. Because, I mean, um, he only produced Back to the Future. Of course, Zemeckis directed it. But uh, that was right after Indiana Jones. So maybe Indiana Jones was the end of the Paramount run with Spielberg and the beginning of his relationship with Universal, which he still has to this day. My my big geeky universal memory is um in the Flintstones movie, the live action Flintstones movie. I remember the way the universal logo was shown. It was like prehistoric globe and uh I was very tickled by that as a kid. I I I I don't know. It 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 hooked me from from the get-go. It's funny you say that because the first movie that the universal logo makes me think of is Jurassic Park. Mm. So same yeah. Dinosaurs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so with all that being said, it's it's it sounds like, I mean, I think it was rumored, but I, I think that this is, it's probably very likely now, Nolan's next movie uh, is going to be about J. Robert Oppenheimer and the Manhattan Project. Doesn't really sound like a typical Nolan movie. Of course, he did have a, uh, a historical film with Dunkirk, mm-hmm. uh, but there's a lot of grandioseness to that f- film and he could still use a lot of the practical effects he likes to use. This sounds like it's going to be a pretty straight story. And I think, is this Nolan going, okay, fine. I'm going to make something that could win me an Oscar. Very well could be. And it, I think it was just a rumor, right, that they were saying uh, Killian. Is it Cillian or Killian? It's Killian Murphy, right? I'm I'm like 99% sure it's Killian Murphy. Killian, yeah. And if if he does cast Killian Murphy, which he has a long-standing relationship with, um but I I often haven't seen him. I don't know if I've really ever seen him play a lead in a Christopher Nolan film. So, uh this He could... auditioned for Batman and didn't get it, but he yeah. gave him Scarecrow yeah. for three movies. <laughs> and he's a performer who I would love to see uh be recognized more by by awards uh bodies so uh maybe this could be it he's a good actor he's a very striking look about him but i've never seen him in anything that uh didn't just really enjoy so Mm -hmm. uh, if he is in it i'm i'm all for it yeah i think in the end 
I think this mix up could be really good. And um, I, I'm very curious to see how it may change the look and feel of Christopher Nolan's uh, films, because as getting a little ahead of myself here, but everyone knows we're what we watched the prestige for this and the prestige i don't believe was produced by warner brothers um i think it was before he i I don't know maybe i shouldn't say this without knowing for sure but it at least was before i think it came out between uh the batman begins and the dark knight yes correct and um there i feel that after the dark knight came out there has been a big uh, shift in the, the t- style of Christopher Nolan's uh, filmmaking, and um, maybe it'd be cool to see him go back to something a little more uh, uh, grounded. That's the best way I could put it. Sure, I mean, I definitely saw what he did in Batman Begins set the stage for everything he's done since then. Um, if you go back and watch Memento and Insomnia, uh, you can tell they didn't really put his stamp yet, but. You know, particularly Batman Begins, the font used, the use of lighting and color, uh, the relationship with Hans Zimmer, not having opening credits, all that really started with Batman Begins. And I mean, I feel like the Batman movies, Inception, like those all have the same font. Dunkirk has the same mm-hmm. font. Yeah. So I don't know. Huge Nolan fan. I, 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 I don't get the hate. Uh, yeah. I think his movies are so rewatchable. So entertaining, so like stylistic only to him. Um, his, his movies aren't perfect. Whatever, I, I'm a big fan. Can't wait to see what happens out of this. Yeah. All right, we take a quick break, and we'll be right back to do our first ever episode of Twinning. Welcome back. All right, Chelsea. Here we go. So we're gonna do this first Twinning episode now. I remember catching this phenomenon uh, even as a kid. I think the first one that stuck out to me was was the mid-90s. You had Volcano. And I don't think I ever saw Volcano, but I remember because it came out, people said it was not good. But I remember seeing the trailer as a kid, and it was like, oh, I want to see that. And then Dante's Peak. And I was like, wait a minute. This is the same movie, and they're both coming uh-huh. out this summer. And then, like, over the years, I've just kind of noticed it happening. And you... You hear the rumblings that a script's getting passed around, and maybe it's one spot and then it's another spot. Um, so one studio's trying to jump ahead of the other one to get that movie out. Um, what I'm interested in is like the legalities, right? Because clearly somebody had a, a screenplay, mm-hmm. and two studios wanted to do something with the general theme of that screenplay. But why? I really am curious. I mean, I guess you know, free use laws and stuff. But I, I don't know. What do you think? I yeah, I actually am surprised that um there aren't more examples um on that Wikipedia list I mentioned of of twin films because in the way that our world is so trend based, like you would think that this would be happening I don't know annually um if uh, because of the 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 way trends come and go. But I hadn't thought about the legality portion of that in terms of whose like idea, whose story by this like originates from and then breaks off. Uh, but I think there probably is a lot of that happening. I mean, someone someone I know wrote a, uh, a spec script for something and I don't want to name too many names, but they ended up seeing their idea they came up with in their spec strip script being used 
in a very popular television show uh, a few years later because it had been passed around to some people. And it I'm not saying anything shady happened, like someone purposely stole the, the idea. It's just the nature of the business. It just plants a seed somewhere in someone's mind, and then they have a dream where they envision what that I, first idea, that seed was, and they're like, now I have a TV show, or now I have a movie, and I think it just just is the way things happen. Nothing, no, no ephus gephus. All, not to say it doesn't happen sometimes, but um, yeah. Sure. Well, and also I think it's interesting where you just said you're surprised it doesn't happen more because you really think about it. It's kind of absurd. It's happened as many times as it has, but it's become common enough that you're like, yeah, why doesn't this happen more often? It's this weird seesaw thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we just, you know, I think we were talking about this the other day and I just thought this would be a good idea for a series of episodes. And I mean, obviously we're not going to do them back to back. It'll just be something we do from time to time. But for the first one we, we picked, I think we pretty easily chose the prestige and the illusionist. Yeah, when you mentioned this theme to me over text, I was like, the movies that come to mind when I think of that are The Prestige and The Illusionist, which at that point I had seen The Prestige twice. I'd never seen The Illusionist because I was like a little snob about it for some reason. I don't know. But I was like, and there's no way it's as good as The Prestige. Yeah, I, I had not seen The Illusionist before we did this. But of course, I, I as I said at the top of the, the show, I, I love Nolan. So I've seen Prestige quite a few times. In fact, I will say... Touching on, you know, the Nolan theme going into this, I will talk about you know, the first time I saw Prestige because I was not familiar with Nolan before Batman Begins. Uh, I know he had made, somebody told me, oh, he did that movie where Robin Williams was a killer and uh, Al Pacino was the FBI agent. And so Batman Begins comes out and I was like that. I remember the first time I saw it in theaters, I was like, this is a different vibe. But when I rewatched it on DVD, I liked it more and more. And then... When the next, he's like, the next film by this director is this trailer comes out as this movie with magicians. And he's using Christian Bale again. Mm. And I was just kind of like, dude, you tease us with the Joker card at the end. Can you just get on with the with the next Batman movie? I don't, I'm magicians. What, <laughs> what is this? Then I watched it and you're like, okay, this guy's got it. He's got it. And I can't wait to see what he does from here. Yeah, I the first time I saw this movie, I watched it with my dad, um, this movie meaning The Prestige, and we rented it, we were watching it at home, I was still a teenager, and I had what I felt was my first panic attack watching it, that might sound dramatic, but I don't really know any other way to describe it, like, the movie like tapped into something there with the the type of sabotage that the two characters engage in <laughs> it was like more than i could handle at the time but uh i i i can say i've moved past that because in my recent rewatch no panic attack i'm fine but uh i i i i like i, I think that movie is great for rewatch rewatchability because of the twist there's a lot of things to pick apart um, in the prestige. For sure. Uh, and it's certainly right off the bat in this comparison, certainly more complex than the illusionist. So, so let's talk about the illusionist a little bit. Um, this is my, again, my first time seeing it. I really like Edward Norton. I've always liked Paul Giamatti. Um, I just, Jessica Biel, not to, sorry to interrupt, but I, I went into it kind of thinking I was going to like, maybe not be that impressed with Jessica Biel in it because I only really remember her from Seventh Heaven and a couple other action movies. I thought she does a very good job in, in the, in the film. She was fine. 
She was totally fine. I, I, you know, I've, I've never had strong feelings about her one way or the other. Uh, I think she's always at, at the least fine. Um, yeah. Except for uh, that show, The Center. Oh, uh, I yeah. thought she was really fantastic on that. But yeah, she wasn't, um, you know, it could have been a disaster. She could have been doing that accent. And, you know, I'm sure if somebody in Europe heard that accent, they'd be like, oh, this is an American doing a bad accent. But I, I didn't think it was, you know, as atrocious as some other examples we have yeah. from other movies over the years. But overall, I'd say The Illusionist was a little on the nose. When I say it's less complex than than The Prestige, I mean, it, it truly was. It's a straightforward film. Like very boy, romance, heavy on the romance. Heavy on the romance. Yeah. Um, there's a mystery that's not really a mystery. <laughs> I mean, I you the the you see the ending coming from a mile away. The reveal is um the the definitely got to give it to the prestige in terms of the twist and and how that that uh because both films do have a twist in them. I mean, they are about magic and illusions and um. I think that I, I, yeah, well, we'll get into it with our categories. I don't want to spoil anything. Um, but, uh, but I think when you say the illusionist is a bit more of a straightforward, it felt very reminiscent of a lot of films I was used to, especially very romantic kind of period piece films with this added element of magic in it that, um, which I was very charmed by. I, I did really like it. Um, uh, and there I'll, I'll get into all the things I specifically really liked about the illusionist, but yeah, we've got, we've got categories. This is how all the twinning episodes are going to be. We're going to have categories. Categories may change from we've, this list is mostly general, but we're going to have a little fun with it. And maybe as we do this more and more, we'll come up with, with more categories or categories that are, uh, uh, pertinent to the movies that we're talking about mm -hmm. um but other quick thoughts on the illusionist young aaron taylor johnson just yes uh just pops up you know i uh he's say same as just be i'm always like ah he's fine mm -hmm. uh, i think people are like really like him he's not someone i get excited when i see but i'm like you know when he pops up in tenet or the or the illusion is like ah there's aaron taylor johnson look at that uh also uh rufus sewell who played the oh yes the yeah. prince uh underrated actor I, you know he just kind of shows up here he was in the father first time i'd seen him in years he's in the holiday which have you ever seen that movie i haven't it's i know nice you're dying to, to do him. a rom-com episode we will <laughs> i it's nice to see him in um a modern kind of romantic comedy setting like he plays uh this man that kate winslet's character's really hung up on and he's so good at playing a villain um, and there is there are villainous elements to his character in the holiday, but uh, anyway, just a shout out to that movie and his performance in it. I, I he's he elevates a lot of things he's in. He's great in Knight's Tale. Not that that really needed much elevating because it's already a great movie. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, probably my favorite movie uh, that I've ever seen him in was um, Dark City, which if you like sci-fi or just unique and interesting films that movie is dope like i highly recommend dark city it's it's a it's a really weird cool film is that one of the films that they say is a twin film of the matrix no did it come out around the same time i came out but i think it came out like 97 98 okay. and matrix out 99 i could be wrong about that 
it might be loosely I don't know. I it's hard for me to answer that without telling you what the movie is okay. and I don't want to tell like go just go watch it. Dark City. But I if it came out in 99, I could see somebody making that argument. Uh but I I would say it's 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 too loose of a similarity to to fall into our twinning category. But okay, so so first off, let's say that do this. Uh Illusionist, 73% Rotten Tomatoes. One Oscar nomination for cinematography. The Prestige. This is this is why this is why again we're doing episodes like this. This is fascinating. Yeah. Same theme. Seventy six percent Rod Tomatoes. Very close. Two Oscar nominations. One being cinematography. I know. <laughs> in art direction. So already we've got a lot of similarity going here. And uh, I'll shout out Metacritic um, at it. The Illusionist, sorry, did you say on Rotten Tomatoes that The Illusionist is lower than The Prestige is? Only or? by three points. Okay, on Metacritic, The Illusionist is two points higher than uh, The Prestige. So uh, take that for what you will. I don't know. The critics certainly seem to feel similarly about it. But if you go to IMDb, the audience did not. Uh, the Illusionist, I believe, is like 7.6, 7.5, mm. something like that. And The Prestige is 8.5. Um, so probably the Nolan name behind, like not a lot of people, I think, uh, what's his Neil Berger is the director of the illusionist. And I, I don't think his name probably rings as many bells as Christopher Nolan does. He also wrote the illusionist, but when I looked him up, he's done a lot more directing than writing. Uh, and he's done quite a few TV episodes as well. So I wasn't familiar with his name. Yeah, I was, I wasn't either, but, um, so I, I wonder if the prestige having, I'm I'm saying this from my own experience is that I know I kept the prestige in a little I held it in higher regard because Nolan's name was behind it and I wasn't as familiar with the filmmaker behind the illusionist so sure yeah um, I'm a little surprised it took me this long to see the illusionist because I, I do like Edward Norton I think his career has not been as substantial as we probably thought it was going to be in the nineties and that's because he's a little bit difficult to work with. As we've learned, he wants to rewrite every script as soon as he gets on it's on set. But my, my father, particularly this in this era was, was upset. He was just a huge Edward Norton fan and he bought the illusionist. And so it was in the house and I just never watched uh. it. So with all that being said, I guess we could start talking about, let's start comparing these movies based on these categories that we have. Let's do it. All right. So Chelsea mostly compiled this list. I kind of gave some input, but uh, I, she's better at this stuff than me. Oh, so. no, 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 no. <laughs> you came up with, the I think, the, some of the best categories in here, but thank you for the credit. Of course. First couple we're going to do, pretty obvious. So you put lead roles. Tell me your thoughts on that. Well, um, I would say in the prestige, it's a little a little easier to pick out in the illusionist who, the lead who the lead is of that film. I mean, they're heavily featured front and center in the, on the poster, which is Edward Norton. But the uh, the prestige is a little tricky. I would say Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale are splitting a lead performance. Is that how you would classify it? Yes, but if pressed. If you put a gun to my head, I would say that Hugh Jackman is more of a lead. Yeah, he is. 
The film does a cool, tricky thing where he is the protagonist for I, for the majority of the film, but he it it flips and we get a I think a really great um, turn in um, who we're caring for, who we, we see as a protagonist versus an antagonist. So um, for this category, though, I guess I'll cut to the chase. I went with my my one and only Christian Bale uh, won out in this category for me as a best lead performance. I think uh, what was asked of him and and are we getting into spoilers with this? I mean, the movie's been out since 2006. Yeah, I, I wrestled with that because the prestige is it, it, it's it, you don't if nobody's ever seen it, you want them to watch without knowing anything. But but guys, it's a 15 year old movie. Like if you <laughs> haven't watched it, and you're listening to this podcast. That's on you. Yeah. So that being said, Christian Bale is playing two men, twins. Uh, which is revealed later in the movie. Um, and this being my third time seeing the movie, I was like picking up and knowing now in the back of my mind kind of what the twist was. It didn't spoil it for me because it actually made me sort of try to see what little tricks he was using so that we could tell. And this happens in the writing too, but so that we could tell when he was playing the Alfred character who we know as the lead that Christian Bell is playing and when he was actually Alfred's brother portraying Alfred, if that makes sense. Yes, you took the words right out of my mouth about Christian Bale. I was I was going to say that. And, and I, no matter how many times I've seen the movie, I think this is the first time I actually thought about that because I think the brothers had similar personalities. But when you really stop and think about it, you can see the subtle differences. And Christian Bale, I mean, he's one of the best actors the last 20 years. So, mm. I mean, yeah. I took things a little differently than you did. Okay. I didn't do a one-on-one type of thing. All right. I took them as a group. All right. So, in my opinion, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bale were the leads versus Edward Norton and Paul Giamatti, who were the leads. Okay. And I certainly gave it to Jackman and Bale. I think that even just doing a one-on-one comparison in each instance if Jackman and Norton are the main antagonist or protagonists and Bale and Giamatti are the main antagonist, I think Jackman beats Norton and Bale beats Giamatti. Now, that being said, again, Edward Norton is a phenomenal actor. Mm-hmm. Phenomenal actor. I, I, I would, again, if we're putting that same gun to my head, I would probably say Edward Norton is technically a better actor than Hugh Jackman. Yes. He was horribly miscast in this movie. It was distracting. I I am I'm a little shocked he took this role. And it's not even that he did a bad job. It was just not a good part for him. Hmm. And uh I love Hugh Jackman. I think he's criminally underrated. I I don't think I would have thought I would ever say that probably like mid 2000s his prestige Wolverine era. Mm-hmm. I think prisoners was the first time that I was like, is Hugh Jackman a really good yeah. fucking actor? Yeah. And like what he's done over the years, Hugh Jackman is a really good fucking actor. And he's only been nominated one time for Les Miserables. I think part of that is he has picked some silly movies over the year. I just think he has fun doing this stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, I think in this instance, Jackman was quite a bit better than Norton. Um, I thought Paul Giamatti was actually pretty good in The Illusionist, but to all the points you just made about Bale, the subtle things of playing two different characters, really three different characters, because he's also Fallon. Yes, yeah. Um, 
you, yeah, Bale over Giamani, but that's speaking more towards towards Bale doing phenomenal performance, less so than Giamani being not good because Giamani's probably the best actor in The Illusionist. Yes, he um, he and Rufus Sewell. Rufus Sewell. Yeah, I would say um, really uh, are are a big part of the reason why I enjoyed watching The Illusionist. I I'm not as familiar with Edward Norton's work as I. It sounds like you and like your dad are, and I I. But what I do know about him is, I mean, he plays kind of a wise ass if that's a good way to describe it and in the roles I've seen him in um he plays that part well um and kind of at times smarmy so I could maybe see on paper why they thought him playing this magician type kind of playing with uh the uh messing with the minds of like all the aristocratic society i could see maybe why they went in that direction but i don't know yeah his accent work was kind of distracting for me in that movie i i yes i agree i i don't i don't think it was egregious but it was definitely distracting i i don't know like he was he was fine Edward norton's a really good actor it was just it was not a good part for him it was it was very he, to use the word distracting again, it was just the whole movie. I was just like, I'm looking at Edward Norton with the goatee. Yeah, yeah the <laughs> goatee. Mean, the goatee was a lot. Yeah. So moving on to the next category, supporting cast. Now, I kind of did the same thing. I took them as a group. Okay. So I did, you know, Michael Kane, Michael Kane, uh, Scarlett Johansson, Andy Serkis, David Bowie, Rebecca Hall. Um, I took all of them versus Jessica Biel, Rufus Sewell, uh, Eddie Marson, and again, the people in the actors in The Illusionist did a perfectly fine job. I like Rufus Sewell. I like Jessica Biel. They were not as good as Michael Caine and Scarlett Johansson and Andy Serkis. Yeah, I I think Michael Caine has become a little bit of a, a meme in through the years of his work with Christopher Nolan. Um, so I tried to like remove myself from kind of that, like, oh, he always speaks in the same kind of manner in these films and the way he He's leads these really, characters really through good it. good in this movie, though. Um, he is. I think that, again, in that twist that I was talking about and the way that we have been caring so much about, um, Hugh Jackman's character and his journey through the movie, and then he does something that's quite unforgivable or pretty despicable and you see um michael kane who has been on his side through most of the movie make a real shift in um in where his alliance is and um and i think he played that really well um so it's, I, it's I probably yeah. the best performance he has in any nolan movie mm-hmm. i i agree i think he it, it was kind of fun you could kind of see what his backstory was he probably worked up for this character probably was a little bit like of a sexy guy who which michael Caine used to play those kind of roles like when he was younger so i think he tapped into that um in this so um sorry i started out kind of being down on him negative i i was more trying to say yes that i it was great to see him in in a role that was a little different from playing alfred so uh alfred right is that his character in batman oh Uh, my god yes absolutely oh my gosh i just I got really nervous there. <laughs> I forgot the name. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think that 
not just in this instance in their career. Scarlett Johansson is a much better actress than Jessica Biel, and that's not a knock on Jessica Biel. Scarlett Johansson's a good actress. Oh, I love yeah, I love anytime she shows up. I I I I have a soft spot for her, and Rebecca Hall is 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 really wonderful She's too. Really good yeah. in this movie. Um, and then of course Andy Serkis and David Bowie playing Nikola Tesla. Uh, that was a lot of fun. So, mm-hmm. so I'm also giving supporting to the Prestige. Well, I um, I like that we saw this in a little different way and a way we were categ- classifying these things. I, I did pick uh, Paul Giamatti as my favorite of the supporting performances between the two movies. And I, um, I think he, it's funny, this term has been used a lot, I've heard in the last week, but he really understood the assignment. <laughs> but <laughs> I think he, he saw the overall vision uh, for kind of the style uh, of film that uh, that the director was going for with The Illusionist. And I think he really came to the table with uh, a very like, it reminded me of like a the- kind of theatrical performance, but like toned down enough for the for the screen. And um, I loved I loved his accent work. It was great. Um, I don't know if it was very be- believable, but I I was hooked uh, with it. And um, I also thought he played the role of this inspector who kind of admired uh, the uh, Edward Norton character that the illusionist. He admired his 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 work, but had a job to do working for the um, the crown prince. So uh, I I thought he played that uh, that push and pull really well, and um, I find him just be really fun to watch. He he did a really good job, and I, and I like like yeah, I liked everything you just said. Like I agree with it, and his you know you could tell he was having fun. His accent work, uh, the, his internal struggle of liking Edward Norton but having a job to do. I really appreciated all that. Um, I did lean towards him as my when I was watching Losing Your Son. I was like, I might, I might pick him in that category. But then I watched Prestige and I was like, oh, I can't. I just can't do it. <laughs> I, Everybody's so good in that movie. They are. They are. They are really good. I would. I guess maybe this is a good time for me to speak up. As much as I really, really love Christopher Nolan movies, I don't always um, like uh, what he does with his. Uh, with the women in his films, I feel like he doesn't often give them like a whole lot to do other than kind of be there to just push along a plot for the male character. So I, I think he, he I think he holds women in really high regard. And I think he was really trying to do something with Interstellar um, in with the Jessica Chastain character um, in that. But I um, I I don't know. I, I I do. I think Scarlett Johansson and Rebecca Hall did really good with did did great work with what they were given but it would have been nice to see them fleshed out a little bit more yes not to go on a tangent i mean i think giving maul the power that she had in inception um you know making catwoman as prominent as she was in the dark night rises and hathaway's that's probably the best acting job in that movie uh yeah she's but, the, yeah but i i see why why you say that and um i don't think that you're wrong at the same time it's like i understand he's a he's a man he's gonna write about things and make things that he understands so sure and also this we'll get to in a minute but this movie was based off of a book and so the source material was there and the story is about these two men's obsession 
Oh, so. which actually, I'm so glad you say that because it makes me think about when I was here a few days ago talking briefly with Lacey, a, a little behind the scenes moment here, uh, a little bit about her impression of the prestige and we cut it off because we wanted to save some of it for the podcast. But something I said to Lacey that I do really love about the prestige is the way it depicts the fragility of male ego. And so I think that there is something subversive kind of happening uh, in the prestige there. It it it, it is showing a, a rounded vision, I, I think. Sure. Of that. And we'll get more into that when we get to that screenplay category. Oh, yes. But what's the next one, Chelsea? Or do you want to go right into the screenplay category? Sure. We could switch that up. Yeah. yeah. Let's go right into screenplay. You 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 go. Well, I'm sorry. I, I've, been, I've been chatting up a storm <laughs> over here. I, I think what you just said is good right and it is i mean the movie ends and you might be rooting for one of them but neither one of them are a good guy (laughs) you know they're both completely obsessed full of hubris revenge you know i don't feel sorry for christian bale's character yeah you know it's like this is about greatness it's your your wife hanged herself you know scarlett johansson left your brother who is now dead and but oh boy you got one over on old Hugh at, uh, and Hugh Jackman spoiled his character spoiled any type of for lack of a better word I, I think goodness in his quest to seek revenge so it's like he got so blinded by it I guess ah blinded by revenge but it it it, it plays out in a really a really fascinating and and fun way in the movie to see how Hugh Jackman kind of turns and is uh, starts off as this kind of seemingly good person um, who's yeah who just gets um, over- overwhelmed, overwhelmed with revenge yeah yeah in terms of screenplay I'm also gonna give this to the Prestige I just think there was just way more depth there it's much more complexity there the characters all felt more fleshed out. I mean, like I said, illusionist is very on the nose. Boy meets girl, boy misses girl, boy and girl grow up, boy and girl find each other. I mean, it was just, you could tell everything was going to happen before it did. And that makes for an enjoyable, easygoing movie. Yeah. But it, it, yeah. I, I, I also, I wrote down the prestige by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan. I, I, I think their screenplay wins out in 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 this category for sure. And I will be fair. I will be fair with the screenplay a little bit. I've seen The Prestige many times. I love this movie. To this day, I still have questions that I've just accepted will never get answered. The biggest one being, and it drives me insane, I have scoured the internet looking for a reasonable explanation of this, and I can't find one. We know now, here comes that spoiler, guys, Christian Bale is a set of twins living one man's life mm-hmm. as a, as a, as a, a detour, as a distraction. He sends Hugh Jackman's character to Tesla, who just happens coincidentally to, to make be- a machine <laughs> that clones him. I, I, I just, I need an explanation for that. And I've just accepted. I'm never going to get one. Disbelief. I also want to know why Hugh Jackman I, I understand at first why when he kind of adopts a new identity to live in the shadows and see Christian Bale's demise, why he adopts this like a uh, British accent after I believe he's an American playing an American living in England for most of the movie. But then like 
when he has his final confrontation with Michael Kane, I think at the end, he still is keeping up that British accent. And I'm like, why are you still? What? Why? What? Why do we need this? Can you just go Was back he, to your? Do you mayor? mean in the house? Yes. Yeah. Well, maybe or, at the service. Or under the state. Is it when they're under the state? Why am I forgetting this now? I just remember being like, they really have kept. He, why did he commit so hard to that bit? But <laughs> yeah. Okay. What's the next category, Chelsea? Uh, best score. Ooh, so I'm actually going to give this one to the illusionist. Uh, me too. The, re- uh, the remarkable Philip Glass. Yeah, it was. Oh, it is. There are a few things in in the illusionist that I, as I was watching, I'm like, yes, check, check, check. This is winning in all these categories. And I like hands down, I knew that the score. Uh, it it's very it's it's so uh, lush and it, it it really makes you feel like you're back in turn of the century vienna like it transported me it's beautiful yeah i look this was almost not fair and and all respect to david julian who did the score for the prestige i i'm wasn't familiar with him when i when i looked up his name philip glass is one of the great modern virtuoso composers that we have the man is genius he is he's does not like his job is not doing movie scores. <laughs> he composes operas, right? And uh, yeah, modern day symphonies. I mean, he's a, he's an absolute genius who gets asked to do movie scores sometimes. Uh, he's a remarkable composer. And the second I saw his name in the credits, I was like, I, I'm probably going to pick the Illusionist score. And uh, it it just fit it fit in so well with as we'll get into um, the cinematography and some other kind of like framing devices in the illusionist that like kind of lent itself to being like a silent film I would say like something a little closer to the era that the film takes place in and um, so I thought it really worked in beautiful harmony the score with uh, some of the other elements of the illusionist that I really loved yeah that's an easy one hands down yeah what's next Uh, best use of color okay I guess yeah we're kind of moving into cinematography here (laughs) Okay, share, share your thoughts with me here. Um, I, I mean, the illusionist wins. Uh, and in this category for me, I, 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 as I was watching it, I was like, oh yes, yes, this, I love it. It, it's the, the candlelight, the way scenes were lit, it was all. Um, it, it was definitely a, a richer, or warmer experience than the Prestige was. I think there is a coldness, um, a, a like reliance on like the blues and the grays in the Prestige that I think are that totally work for what the story they're trying to tell. But I, I'm just going for my heart, and I just really loved the colors uh, and the lighting and everything in the Illusionist more than the Prestige, but. That's my two cents. Yeah, this was a tough one for me, and I I thought that the 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 visuals and the use of color were actually quite similar. I I think I did finally opt for the illusionist. I I just liked a lot of the aesthetics of the illusionist. I like the foggy streets and um, that era of architecture, mm-hmm. and the cobblestone streets. You're right. There was a warmth. There seemed to be a constant warm glow mm-hmm. um, in every scene and. Yeah, the procedure is—it's very dark and drab. But that was England in that time, and it was yeah, that time. Yeah. And you're right; it did work for what the movie was. But yeah, I mean, this was a close one, but I—I I gave it to Illusionist. 
the, a, a shout out to the prestige in a scene that I, I, I think is one of the most beautiful shots in the movie is when um, Hugh Jackman is in Colorado and visiting Tesla and he gets to see what happens with the electricity. Um, that I, I almost said this exact thing right now that yeah. the snow with the lights, it was great. Yeah. All right. What's next, Chelsea? Uh, best animal. You came up with this category. This was great. Listen, those birds it's died, going to the birds. died for your entertainment. Yeah. And those horses and illusionists did nothing. Shout out to the horse that stayed Carried steady when, when Jessica Biel was, was laying face down on the horse. But those birds sacrificed their lives for your entertainment. I'm giving it to the birds. Absolutely. Giving it to the birds. I also want to know how that kid was that smart to know that that bird was dying after get- I I would I just was never that bright as a child when he he knew the trick already when he was crying about it he knew the bird had to be killed in order to make it happen I would have just been look watching the magic show smiling like a dummy Chelsea but- that kid was Albert Einstein Yeah there you go um, there was a cute little moment with a frog in The Illusionist in the flashback with Aaron Taylor Johnson that I will shout out, but it was very CGI. The, those Nolan birds, they take it hands down. Yeah, I thought you might bring up the butterflies from Illusionist, which were heavily CGI. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. Shout out to the birds. What's next, Chelsea? Um, th- this uh, funniest moment. So... I feel like I had to reach for a couple of these. So here are my two choices. In The Illusionist, it was, it was very funny to me after he brings the ghost, quote unquote, of Jessica Biel back for the first time. And then after sh- the ghost goes away and everybody's gasping and trying to leave the auditorium, <laughs> that one guy's chasing Paul Giamatti going, excuse me, sir, <laughs> are you going to get to the bottom of this? He's like, well, I'm going to try. Well, I think you ought to. What I was dying laughing. I was like, this is hilarious. <laughs> Who is this guy? He is going for it. They're like, you're going to be in one scene. You get six lines. And he was like, I'm going to make the most of these six lines. He's the one, too. And he's like, well, what is your name? He's good, sir. Whatever. He's like, I don't see why that is pertinent. <laughs> it's like, so funny. <laughs> yeah, he practiced his lines in front of the mirror. You could, that, that actor came to play that day. That was no, That was a great little part. Um, I chose for the funniest moment the um, Hugh Jackman with the fake nose and teeth playing the 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 failed drunk actor who happens to resemble oh, Hugh Jackman's man. character. I, um, I, I didn't go for that. Uh, it's not quite a moment. It's more just a funny element of. Uh, but I I I think I you can tell Hugh Jackman had a lot of fun with that part. So. Um, I, I, I think he's great. He's just the perfect amount of screen time. Comes in, the character does what he's supposed to do, make an ass of himself, but stir up a little trouble. It was great. Well, as funny as I thought that scene in Illusions was, my choice is Andy Serkis's face. Because every time he gave that <laughs> oh. Grinch stole Christmas smile, I'm like, it's Gollum. Yeah. I'm looking at Gollum. Lacey recognized Lacey loves Lord of the Rings movies. And I was like, recognize that guy? Took her half a second. She goes, oh my God, that's Gollum. <laughs> So I'm going with Andy Serkis's face. It just kept sucking me out of the movie. It's very funny. <laughs> Good pick. Um, well, what do you think about the best representation of the theme? Like the theme being magic at the turn of the century. I'm definitely going to give this one the prestige. And it's not just, I guess I should have brought this up as screenplay as well. But I think the theme, the theme is mostly about the magic. 
And where I think illusionists fall short is, you know, in the prestige, we get to see how everything was done. Mm -hmm. And there's stuff in the illusionist that Edward Norton's character does. And you're like, that's not realistic. And we just have to accept that he figured out a way to do that at that time. But also on a deeper level with the theme, I think the scenes moving out of order in the prestige was a way to draw your attention away from what they didn't want you to notice. You're, it's a very well edited movie that I should have looked up who the editor was, right. but yeah. But, but that's, that's in the theme, right? Cause that's mm -hmm. what magicians do. They, they the bring pretty women, sleight of hand. They bring pretty women up there to draw your eye away from what they're doing. And I, I feel like the scenes moving out of order do that. You don't catch the ending of the movie because you're so trying to follow are we in the past? Are we in the, the other past or in the present? Where are we? You know? Yes. And I, there was a moment watching The Prestige where I think it was because does Hugh Jackman go to Colorado twice? No, no, no. He's only there once. Okay. I don't know why. But I've it bounces around myself. so much. Yeah. I, I now I've contradicted myself because I was say there was a moment where I thought I could be really confused right now, but I'm not. But I, I guess I mean to say is that it at least I wasn't confused enough to where I about what timeline we were in that I was taken out of the movie. If anything, it made me maybe pay attention closer to, like you said, the things that Christopher Nolan wanted us to pay attention to at that time. So, yeah, right. uh, I did. I guess I had a lot of love for The Illusionist when I was writing my, my my picks for the categories, but I did pick The Illusionist uh, winning in representation of a theme here because that movie I felt like had the most love for like what magic is and there there was a lot of fun with magic in, in The Illusionist that really um, tickled me. So, but I, I can't really argue all your points for the prestige. It, it is a great it is a great magic movie. Well, I, I appreciate the the input on the illusionist. That's why we have to. We can't just agree on everything, yeah. Chelsea. <laughs> All right, what's next? Standout small role, best standout small role. I really thought about Bowie. Yeah, playing playing Tesla because I mean I like David Bowie and not as much as my sister is a fanatic, but um, I like Bowie and it was cool. I remember the first time you see the movie, it was cool that he popped up, yeah. but. He kind of is just not doing a whole lot. So I'm going to give it to Andy Serkis. He was awesome in this movie. And that guy is just so unappreciated in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to appreciate you, Andy. You're awesome. And I'll, and I'll appreciate David Bowie. I think they their their whole um, seg all of their segments in the movie uh, visiting Tesla's uh, studio or whatever you want to call it, lab. Uh, they were great. I did. I did write David Bowie down, but I. I mean, Andy Circus is doing a little more work there, and probably the better standout. But, um, but David Bowie has 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 his moments. He he did exactly what he needed to do. Yeah. So, best costuming, hair and makeup. This is tough because they were quite similar. I mean, yeah. I, I think these two eras are only a few decades apart. But I picked the Prestige only because. I think a lot of the, most of the people in the illusionist were dressed exactly the same. Everyone's wearing black. Everyone's wearing similar hats. The the person who stood the most out by attire was was the prince because he's wearing royal clothing. Mm -hmm. But there was a lot more subtle color in the in the uses. You know, somebody might have a different color jacket than the vest 
mm. and then the tie in in the prestige. Hugh Jackman wearing these great top hats and yeah, good hat. Uh, uh, Bowie's attire as Tesla, and uh, you know, I would say Michael Caine looking pretty sexy in some of the outfits he's wearing. I would say I think he's got no, some he's like sexy man. some shirt sleeves rolled up halfway. Looks it. I I liked I liked how they dressed him in that movie. Yeah, so that's my answer. I um, I ended up going with the illusionist because uh the makeup actually is what took this over the edge for me. Um, Jessica Biel's with makeup, all the with all the disguises they wore in the Prestige. I know. I I'm just going for like what what really struck me uh at the end of the day and i could not take my eyes off jessica biel's face i thought she was so gorgeous in the illusionist and lit and like her makeup is done in a very like minimalist way but she's just like just showing off her beautiful cheekbones that she's got this one really cool scene with like this like red stain on her lip that is uh kind of subtle but i i think um she's she's just uh, a feast for the eyes in The Illusionist and I think that whoever did her makeup must have seen her natural beauty and I thought they really played upon that so it's not really like anything too much to go into like did it really add to th- I guess it did add to my enjoyment of the movie because I thought she looked so pretty so that's that's my sh- that's my pick well I won't argue with any of that alright we're nearing nearing the last few categories here Best movie tagline. So this I guess was we so should. Easy. I guess we should say what the taglines were. This is so easy. Okay. So the prestige is: Are you watching closely? Which is said several times, mostly by Christian Bale, and he always delivers it so good. See, I didn't find that on IMDb. I found it was a friendship that became a rivalry, and I was like, "Is that really the tagline?" Because uh, that sucks. I, I don't know. I found several movie posters that had "Are you watching closely?" But the illusionist is. Nothing is what what it seems. seems. That is the laziest goddamn tagline. Like, who in marketing, somebody just said, here you go, put it on the poster. I don't have time for this. Okay, well, based on your your research you did with the other movie posters, I will definitely give it to the prestige with that one. Nothing nothing is as it seems, yeah. I mean, look, if if all I found was the one you just said, I think it would have been a dead tie for last. (laughs) Well, I thought a friendship. I don't even think those two characters, Hugh Jackman and Christian Bell, were even really friends. Like, they were... I don't, I don't know where know. you found that. That's a bad one. Are you watching closely is much better. Much better. Yes. I also think this is going to be an easy pick because uh, I really think only the illusionist had this, but like best opening, closing credit sequence. I mean, the go ahead. Uh, I don't recall. And you already were mentioning that Christopher Nolan isn't really known for having opening credits. Very minimal. Um, and uh, the illusionist, as I was talking about, I think kind of playing upon like a silent movie era. Um, it, it, I thought those were d- their opening credits and um, ending credits were done, I think, to enhance the theme of, of the film and were very beautiful. So the illusionist wins in my book. I'm going to get real wild with this one. Okay. This is a tie for me. All and right. I'll tell you why. First, so you said the first part. Uh, the Illusionist had opening credits and the Prestige didn't. And by the way, the Illusionist had quite good opening credits. I love the silent film style thing they did. You could hear the crackling while this really beautiful music played. Uh, but the Prestige did have closing credits, and those closing credits are accompanied by a Tom York song. And I love Radiohead. Oh, that's true. Yeah. So I'm going to give it a tie. <laughs> we were sitting there, Mike is like, is this radio? 
this is Tom York. It's oh. uh, it's off his solo, yeah. <laughs> first solo album, The Eraser. Yeah, no, that was, uh, I thought that was a clever choice to have in the ending credits to use that song. So, well, all right, there, there's that. This is our show and we can make the rules and I'm, <laughs> I'm giving it a tie. The best single line utterance, which then I actually broke the rule because it's not a single line. Maybe we'll just call it the best quote from the movie. What was your pick for best? This is our last category, by the way, so, folks. I tried to be fair and I really tried to think about the illusionist. And then I was like Googling quotes from the illusionist and everything of that movie was just pretty mundane. There were a couple of, of solid ones I kind of thought about, but for me, I absolutely love the way Hugh Jackman delivers this line when he first sees the transported man and he's coming back home and he's taking his disguise off and he's telling Scarlett Johansson about it. And you see the setup for the transported man, but they don't show you the trick itself and Hugh Jackman just turns his head and says, it was the greatest magic trick I've ever seen. The way he delivers that line is perfect. It's so good. I also picked a line that Hugh Jackman get, gave um, kind of for maybe a little silly reason. The The way he said it, because it's so preposterous, <laughs> did make me laugh. But it's very like it's a very good like cutting line. It's very telling of like what is happening to his character and how he's turning. Um, but he's talking to Scarlett Johansson about uh, he's been like just going crazy with this rivalry, this uh, seeking of revenge against Christian Bale's character, um, as a little backstory, he believes that Christian Bale purposefully or did something to cause his wife's death or his partner's death in a, a performance of a magic trick where she ends up drowning. Which knot did you tie? Yeah, obsessed, needs to know the knot uh, because he believes there's been some... Uh, tr- he believes Christian Bale isn't telling him the whole truth. And so he blames Christian Bale for his wife's death. Scarlett Johansson is trying to talk him down and Hugh Jackman just says and like this very cold delivery he says I don't care about my wife I care about his secret and I just felt like I'm like okay this is kind of one of those like you just got to go with it like he's turned now into the ultimate villain like well then and, right and, after and, that and, she's like I fall in love with him and he just goes well, then I know how hard this has been for you. So that movie's full of great lines. Yeah, yeah. It was, uh, it was a, he delivers it in a great, very villainous way. And it, that was just, as soon as he said it, I was like, well, this is my winner for the category for the best quote. But um, I don't care about my wife, even though this has been the woman he's been talking about the whole freaking movie. I don't care about her. I just care about the secret. So uh, there we go. So categories aside, um, I think for this first edition of twinning, the winner is the prestige. It's just, it's, it's just a better all around movie. And the illusionist is fine. It's, it's light. Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's a romance. It has a nice ending. If you just want something easy going to watch with some cool scenes, it's absolutely watchable. It's a beaut- and it's a very just beautiful movie to see. Yeah. Yeah. But I think for depth complexities, you know, twist ending, uh, meaning behind it all. It's just the prestige. Yeah, I, 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 I gotta go with the prestige. I agree. So that will end our first ever twinning episode, and uh, we're gonna go ahead and close out as we normally do with a recommendation. Chelsea, what is your recommendation for this episode? 
my recommendation is the 2019 animated film called Spies in Disguise. It is directed by Nick Bruno and Troy Quain, and it stars Will Smith, Ben Mendelsohn, Tom and Tom Holland, and a special appearance by Reba McIntyre. Uh, some, some great, great voice performances. This is not a movie I would have uh, just put on myself, but I was taking care of my six-year-old nephew and we were scrolling through and HBO Max no longer had Space Jam A New Legacy, which is what he really wanted to watch. Thank God for that. Um, and uh, so we, next best thing, went to Spies in Disguise and I, 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 I'm giving this a three. It, it is a really fun, <laughs> really, I think, well-directed, well, just beautifully animated. I keep saying beautiful. I need better vocabulary. Uh, it is just uh, a fun spy action comedy animated film that I think adults can enjoy just as much as children will because my husband and I certainly enjoyed it. I think we were probably laughing at more points in the movie than Jasper, my nephew, was, and he really enjoyed it as well. But uh quick little summary will smith is playing a uh, secret agent a little too big for his britches hotshot tom holland is the uh, character who works in the lab developing all the gadgets they have a disagreement at the beginning of the movie and yada 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 some things happen ben Mendelssohn is a villain doing his great lispy villain stuff love him and then will smith's character has to work with tom holland after he's accidentally turned into a pigeon and he has to work on uh, solving a crime in a pigeon body. And uh, one of my favorite lines in the movie is when he screams at Tom Holland saying, you better unbird me. And uh, that's that's how I'll leave it. But uh, don't don't turn your nose up at Spies in Disguise if you're looking for something to watch on HBO Max. It's very fun. All right. That was a fun recommendation, Chelsea. Thank you for that. (laughs) I didn't have anything ready to go for this. So the first thing that's popping in my mind that I saw recently is Talk Radio, which is a uh, Oliver Stone film he made in 1988. My God, that guy did not stop making movies there for a while because I think Platoon was 86, Wall Street was 87, Talk Radio is 88, uh, Born of the Fourth July is 89, and then right after that, he pumps out JFK and the Doors at the same time. Like, geez, Oliver. Slow down. You're making us all look bad. (laughs) So talk radio, uh, I really liked it because it was kind of a commentary on society and watching it now, it's it's kind of jarring because it's not a lot has changed, but the main character is a late night talk radio host, very reminiscent of what we think talk radio hosts to be now. It was a little bit of Howard Stern. He was a little bit of uh, conservative loudmouths, but he's very back and forth the whole time. He seemed to be kind of left-leaning, then he's kind of right-leaning. Mm-hmm. And you realize it's just to stir people up, to get people to call in. And since it's late night, um, you got a lot of weirdos calling up. But uh, Alec Baldwin is his studio manager, and he learns at the beginning of the movie that their guy just signed a contract with a natural national company, so his show's going to be syndicated, which he seems irritated about because he had no say in it. It does go in his past a little bit because his ex-wife, he's having a tough time, and he has his ex-wife, who is married, come 
uh, to the, the movie takes place in Dallas. He makes her fly into Dallas be- to help him with his anxiety filled time. And she does. Uh, and it shows how they met and how they ended before coming back to the present. But throughout the movie, he is just really pissing people off. And then there's some tragic people that call in and you see, you know, they struggle with, do we keep this person on the air? What do we do? Overall, I just, I, I really liked it. I, it was, it went by pretty smoothly. And the main, the main point of society and that's all it takes. I mean, you know, he, he has a monologue towards the end. And I, if you're not going to watch the movie, I say, just go look at that. He's calling everyone out. It's like, you all hate me, but you listen every night. You need me. And I think about that now. I think about the people in Portland that listen to conservative talk radio and get angry. And I think about the conservatives that watch MSNBC and get angry. And it's just like, what are we doing? Uh, and, of course, there's more depth to it than that. But talk radio, I, I, I give it a three. It was, it was a poignant film. Okay, cool. Do you know where you can watch? Is that on any of the platforms? No, I had to rent it. It was, you know, it was okay. three ninety nine on Amazon to to rent the high def version. But um, I, I, great. Yeah. All right, so that's going to do it for this episode. I think we're going to be coming back next time with something I've been wanting to do for a long time. We're going to revisit the nineteen ninety five Oscars, which have haunted me for <laughs> years, and we're going to have a lot of fun. This is not going to be a typical Oscars type of episode. We're gonna. We're going to rip it apart. It's going to be great. I'm here. I'm, I'm here to defend Forrest Gump. So just be ready for that. <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Well, you'll have to see how we throw down next time. So for the Marquee Spotlight, I am Spencer Bailey. I'm Chelsea Burnett. We'll see you. Thank you for listening. The Marquee Spotlight is recorded in Portland, Oregon. Music composed and produced by Josh Colopy. And cover art created by Taylor Engel. Check us out on Twitter for updates regarding new episodes. And listen to episodes anywhere podcasts are found.